beloved congregation, our Lord Jesus Christ. Until the 19th century, in many countries around the world, also here in Canada, if you couldn't pay your debts, you would have to go to prison. Debtors' prison. We read about them, and as we read some, some of the Charles Dickens books, for instance, we read about debtors' prison, but we had them in Canada as well. In 1836, half the prisoners in Upper Canada were in prison for debt. If you didn't pay your bills, you were sued. The court would order that your goods were sold, and if you had nothing to sell off or not enough things to sell off, you were sent to jail till your debt was paid. And the same went for the person who co-signed your loan. Same thing. And you didn't leave jail until every last cent was paid off. Plus, you had to pay the cost of the jail as well. So people stayed a long time in jail because they had no way of paying their debts. Now imagine uh, in this situation, imagine a person with a very large debt which is co-signed by a friend and he defaults on his debt and, and he has no resources. He's bankrupt. So he flees the country. And his co-signer is jailed until the debt is paid. And imagine years later, this man coming back from a faraway land and he walks along the streets of his town and he turns a corner and comes face to face with his co-signer. His co-signer is walking the streets as a free man. What does that say about the debt? What's the status of the debt? What do we know if we see that co-signer walking the streets? We know that he can only be walking the streets if the debt has been paid, if it is finished, if there is nothing left owing. And that is a picture of what we see in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death and sinners belong to the grave, to death, and they must stay in death until sin has been paid for. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, says Paul to the Romans, and he was raised for our justification, that means that when we see him walking alive again, free from the the jail, the cosmic jail of death and hell, then we know that our debt has been paid because the grave had nothing on him. The grave could not hold him. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is a declaration to the universe that everything is right between us and God. And so we come in Laws Day 25 to a section of, in Laws Day 23, to a section of the Catechism, which has the title, Our Justification. And as I mentioned before we begin to read, for the last number of weeks, from Lord's Day 7 on, the church has been explaining line by line the Apostles' Creed. 
In Lord's Day 7, the question was asked, are all men saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? And the answer was no. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. How do you get to be in Adam? How do you get to die with Adam and in Adam? Well, you just have to be born. If you're born, you're a son or a daughter of Adam. And just by being born, you are united with him in his fall and in his death. Everyone that is born is in Adam. How do you get to be in Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ didn't marry and have children. That's not the way you're in Christ by physical descent. The way to be in Christ is to be united with him by faith. And when you are in Christ, you share in his life, just like when you are in Adam, you share in Adam's death. And so those words, that phrase, in Christ, is so important in the Scriptures. A hundred times in the New Testament, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, is written on the pages of Holy Scripture. Look at the answer in question answer 59. In Christ, I am righteous before God. You remember Psalm 1. Psalm 1 reminds us of what happens to the wicked. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You know what the psalmist says in Psalm 15. Who can ascend the holy mount of God? Only the person who is perfectly pure and innocent and just and righteous. Only the righteous can come into God's presence. Only the righteous can live with God. That means it's very important to be righteous. That means that when we confess only in Christ I am righteous before God, then it is vitally important to be in Christ. So question answer 60 asks a little bit more detail about that. How does that work? How does it work that you are righteous before God? Tell me how. And the answer, answer 60, begins with who we are in ourselves in Adam. Our conscience accuses us of who we are by nature. We, we've grievously sinned against all of God's commandments. We've never kept any of them. Because the Apostle James says, when you break one law, you break them all. And I'm still inclined to all evil. That's Romans chapter 7 right there, where we, we do the wrong that we don't want to do. We're still struggling with our, the remnants of our sinful nature. But there's nothing in us that we can bring to God and say, look, Lord, we're just so righteous. Won't you accept us as your beloved children? That's why those two words there in the second paragraph of answer 60 are so important. Yet God, we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature dead in our sins and trespasses. 
We are by nature without hope and without God. Yet, God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. It's God who has to do it. And that's a theme throughout the entire scripture. Isaiah 59, 16. Isaiah 59, 16 says this. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Time and time again we read in the scriptures of the utter bankruptcy of sinful man that we have no way of resolving the problem that we have no way of healing our diseases and our brokenness and our sin. We have no way of washing and scrubbing away the pollution of our guilt and our stain. Time and time again, the Bible says, but God. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 4, if you have your Bible close at hand, Ephesians 2 4. We have the same dynamic here in the New Testament. The chapter 2 begins, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the in Adam description of who we are. This is who we are by nature, outside of Jesus, outside of Christ. Look at verse 4. But God, that's our only hope, that God will sovereignly do something. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not because we were so good, not because we were so attractive, Not because we were just so cute and God said, oh, I really just need these sinful, wicked men and women to be my children. Not because of us, but because of him. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Look at verse 8. By grace, you have been saved through Faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's why we confess, because the Bible keeps telling us over and over, it was without any merit of my own. I have nothing to offer. I come with empty hands. There's nothing that I can give to God to say, Lord, here, here's a contribution to dealing with my sin. I'm going I'm to help out here, Lord. I'm going to do as best I can, and then Jesus will do the rest. No, I have nothing to offer without any merit of my own. It's all grace. It's all pure, sovereign grace. And that's the difference between Christianity 
and every other religion, every other religion, every false religion, and every false version and, and, and perversion of true Christianity tells us that we can do better, that we can do good. And then when we try harder and when we do good things and when we do better things and we become better people, then things will be set right. And faith says, no, that's impossible. Faith says the only hope is, is that God sets things right and that in the power of his sovereign grace, we can begin to do good and to do better. Unfortunately, before the Reformation, the, the church had fallen into this perversion of the gospel. The church had created, the medieval church had created a whole system of accounting, celestial accounting, where you had your sins and they would weigh the scale one way, and then you had your good works and they would weigh the scale the other way, but you didn't get a monthly bill from God. So you weren't quite sure what the balance was, whether it was negative or positive. And you had a pretty good idea by the teaching of the church that it was negative. And so you needed to go to the church and you needed to pay money to the church so that the church could take some of the good things that the saints had done they had done so many good works that they had extras and the church could sell them to you and you could pay to get right with God. It was a very lucrative scheme for the church, but it had nothing to do with the gospel. All it did was oppress sinners. You think of Martin Luther before he came to discover justification by faith, uh, through faith, by grace alone. He was in continual anguish because of his sin. He was afraid of the Lord Jesus Christ as a judge, a righteous judge, and he had no comfort in life or in death. Well, look at Titus, Titus 3 for a moment. If you have your Bible close at hand, Titus 3. And Titus 3, verse 3, begins by describing our in-Adam nature, who we are by nature. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's the best you can expect from people who are in Adam. Well, look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is the hope for the sinner? The hope for the sinner is not, I'm going to try and get my life in order. I'm going to try to become a better person. I've had it so often in my work as a missionary where people would say that to me. I, I can't join the church. Those are good people. First, I'll get my life in order. First, I'll become a good person. Then I'll join you good people. And if the church is giving the impression that that's the way things ought to work, then we're doing a really bad job of preaching the gospel. 
Because people need to know that the church is the place for wicked sinners to come. Sinners who have no hope. Sinners who have nothing to offer God. Sinners who are stained with the guilt and shame of sin. The church is the place for sinners. Because in the church and through the church, God works the miracle of transforming hard hearts into hearts that believe and transforming lives of shame and guilt into children of the living God. What does the Bible say? Well, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The Apostle Paul describes it so beautifully there, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what's going to happen. You've got to stop being in Adam. You've got to be in Christ. Then you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. It's sovereign grace who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ. In Christ. There it is again. There it is again. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And how do you get reconciled to God? It's so often we, mis- we, make mista- we make the mistake of thinking, well, I've done something bad, and now I better read the Bible more. I've thought something bad or, or I've said something bad and now I've got to make up for it by doing some good things. We can't get that medieval perversion of Christianity out of our system. But that's not the way to be reconciled with God. That's not the way to deal with sin. We can't deal with it. Look at how it must be dealt with. Look at verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the way things work. When you're in Christ, all your sin is put on him and put on the cross. And all his righteousness and innocence and obedience is put on you. That's what it takes. That's the only hope. That's the only solution. In him we become the righteousness of God. This is out of mere grace, we confess right there in Question answer 60, without any merit of my own. Christ is our only hope. And that's offensive. People, by nature, hate the gospel of grace because it humbles us. It says, you're a lost cause. You can't change a thing. You can't do better. You can't improve your situation before God. You are reduced to absolute dependence on the mercy of God. You are reduced to falling on your face and begging for mercy. And the sinner is proud. And the sinner will not accept that he or she is a miserable sinner in need of sovereign grace. That's why so many people refuse the gospel. Because in order to embrace the gospel, you need to humble yourself. And sin loves pride, not humility. How we love to fool ourselves. I remember speaking with an older man in 
South America, he was about to die, and I said to him, what will you say to God? And this man said, I am a good person. I am not as bad as other people. I'm sure God will be very happy to have me in heaven. You know, that's our nature to think like that. It's our nature to be quite impressed with ourselves. It's our nature to kind of put our trust in and pin our hopes on our perceived goodness. We really do think that we're not as bad as other people. How often do we teach our children, our covenant children? We teach them the gospel over and over. We teach them the gospel of sovereign grace over and over. But ask your children. I've done it with my own when they were younger as well. Why will you go to heaven? And so often you will hear the wrong answer. I go to church. I pray. I read the Bible. I am baptized. That's why I'll go to heaven. How are you righteous before God? How are you acceptable of the presence of an infinitely holy and pure and righteous God who is a consuming fire, who consumes sin and sinners? There's only one way to be acceptable. There's only one way to come into his presence without being destroyed in your sin. And that way is Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, 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 in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's the core of the gospel of sovereign grace. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free, only Christ. Now, medieval Christianity, like all works, religions said this, if I try to serve God as best as I can, maybe, just maybe, he will love me or at least feel sorry for me and accept me. A horrible situation to be in where you're just desperately trying to please God and you're afraid he's angry with you. It's oppressive. It's not the gospel. But how many people today, even in our own congregation, live under that oppressiveness, thinking that we have to earn God's favor and wondering if he's angry with us because we've been bad? And it was in the Reformation that we rediscovered the gospel of sovereign grace, the gospel of justification by faith. Luther said, this is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Calvin said, it is the most important basis of true religion that righteousness cannot be earned. It is given in Christ. It's given. Take a look at Isaiah 61 verse 10 for a second, if 
you have your Bible close at hand. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God has to do it. That's our only hope, brother and sister. Look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, as the apostle describes the church Catholic. This holds true for every individual. It holds true for the entire church. Revelation 6, 9. I think I've got the wrong reference here. I'm sorry, I have the wrong reference written down here, but it's, the, it's a reference in, in Revelation which speaks about the same idea that the, the church, Catholic from every tribe and tongue and nation, is washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're dressed in white robes which are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's how we are acceptable to God. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's who you are, brother and sister. That's who we are, congregation. We are, in Christ, beautiful and clean and holy. We have, in Christ, we have the radiant beauty of his glory and his justice and his truth and his purity and innocence and the obedience, the perfect obedience of Christ, the Son of God, belongs to us so that when God looks upon us in Christ, he sees a church so holy, so radiantly beautiful, so righteous as his only son. That's why God is able to love us with the same love with which he loves his son. Because in Christ we are beautiful and righteous. And he gives us that righteousness. It's just a free gift. doesn't charge a bit for it. He sovereignly and freely gives it to us. And when we have that righteousness and that obedience of Christ on our account, it is as if we had never had nor committed any sin, as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. That's the gospel. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it because we know all the things we've done wrong. We can go back to the very earliest years and remember all the times we were naughty as a little child, all the times we were disobedient, the sins of our youth. We remember them well. Some of them weigh down on us still, even if we have repented from them and confessed them. But God tells us in the gospel that when he looks at us, he sees men and women and children who have only ever been good, perfectly good, perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous. That's what it is to be in Christ. Well, question answer 61 says, well, how does this work? Why do you say you're righteous only by faith? Is, is it the faith that does it? And the answer is no, it's not the faith. 
The faith isn't making me righteous. Christ makes me righteous. The, the holiness of Christ is my righteousness. It's not what I do. It's not what I believe. It's not what I say. It's not how I respond. It's all Christ, Christ, and Christ again. But faith is just an instrument that God uses. God gives it to us, and when he gives it to us, faith is what the Belgian Confession describes as the hand of the soul. It allows us to just open up our hand and accept the mercy of God. The righteousness of Christ. Faith clings to Christ. The Spirit uses our faith. He gives us faith, and he uses that faith to unite us to Christ. And so, brother and sister, if we want to live in the, the joy and the glory of the gospel of justification, if we want to live in the joy of the gospel of sovereign grace, we must believe. If only we accept this gift with a believing heart, says the end of question 60. We have to believe. Not go through all the motions, not show up at church every Sunday when we can, not say the right things and memorize the right texts, not live externally a life which is more or less acceptable in a Reformed community. We must believe. We must embrace Christ as he comes to us in the gospel. And Lord Day 7 says that those are saved, only those are saved who are grafted into Christ by a true faith. We've got to be grafted. We've got to be in him. And so you can be a member of the church physically. That's not enough. Just like you can have a branch which is grafted into the vine and it's tied to the vine, it's not enough. It has to start drinking in the life-giving sap of the vine so that it becomes part of the vine and the power and the life of the vine course through that branch so that it produces fruit and that it is living. It has a vital connection. That's what we need to have. It's not good enough to be part of the covenant. It's not good enough to be a member of the church. That's the physical aspect. We're bound to the vine. But something else has to be there as well. We need to have a living faith. We need to be connected to the power of Christ and his spirit by true faith. Well, as we get to Laws 24, which we'll quickly deal with, the questioner in the catechism says, well, I really don't see why we can't just be good people and then God accepts us as righteous. I mean, can't we at least do something? People aren't all bad all the time. People do good things. Why can't God be happy with that? Why can't that contribute something? And yes, people do good things. Even the worst unbelievers, they can do good things. They can give their mother a hug. They can help a little old lady across the street, and that's a lot better than robbing a bank. People do good things. And after their conversion in Christ, people do even better things. They do good works for the glory of God. So why can none of this contribute to our righteousness? Brothers and sisters, if we're doing good works out of thankfulness, there's just no pressure. We just are being who we are. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We're new creatures in Christ, new creations in Christ. And so we start reflecting his character more and more. There's no pressure. It's just natural. And we grow and we grow. But if our eternity is dependent on our good works, and that's a lot of pressure, we start sweating. Because the Bible says, 
that if we're going to be acceptable before God, we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. And we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. We need to do things perfectly to be acceptable. James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails on one point has become accountable for all of it. So if we're going to do good works that are acceptable to God, we have to be perfect. If we want to get right with God, we need to do perfect good all the time. We need to be like Jesus, perfectly holy and obedient and righteous at every moment. And how possible is it for a sinner to do that? How possible is it for a sinner to make himself, make herself as perfect as Christ in order to be received by the Father? Well, Back to Isaiah again. What does Isaiah say in chapter 64, verse 6? He says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like filthy rags. Now, sometimes you may have wondered about that text. How is it possible that our righteous deeds are polluted garments? Does that mean if we bring a meal to a sick brother or sister that, that, that God considers that filthy and polluted? Well, no. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about the fruits of sanctification. It's talking about good works in terms of justification. It means that in terms of its value to buy God's approval, it's no better than a piece of clothing stained with the blood of the monthly discharge. That's what it means, the polluted garment. It's unclean. It makes us unable to come into the presence of a holy God. In terms of justification, any work we do cannot make us acceptable to God. It always falls short and far short. In terms of sanctification, our good works are a sign of new life and of the Spirit's work in, in someone who has been justified by grace alone and through faith alone and in Christ alone. So that's the question. Good works are going to be part of our life as Christians. If we want them to be contributing to our justification, we're always going to be disappointed. They're not going to work. If we want to see them as fruits of our sanctification, as the, the fruit of the, the Spirit working in us when we already are in Christ, we're going to be delighted as we grow more and more in that. That's how works work. God makes us new creations in Christ. He justifies us by grace alone, and then he starts working on us so that we become more and more who we are in Christ, and by the power of His Spirit, he, he leads us to walk in the works that He has prepared for us from all eternity. That's what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10. So the key to the Christian life is not to try harder, to do better, to be better. The key to the Christian life is to take every opportunity to grow in Christ. Everything comes out of that. The more closely your heart and soul are knit to Christ, the more you will reflect his character and shine with his holy glory and rejoice in the fact that you are acceptable in the beloved, in the presence of the Father. It's like a house, a dark house. It's, the lights are off and the house is full of lamps. Now, if you want to light up that house, there's no sense buying more and more and more lamps. That's not going to solve things. 
if the electric main is disconnected, you've got to be plugged in. You need the power to be plugged in. And when, when, when the house is plugged into the power grid, then the lights can shine, and only then. And so we need to be plugged in. We need to be grafted into Christ by faith. Because when that's there, we read about that in John 15. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. We need to be in him. And when we're in him, the power flows and the fruit grows. Now, the world and the false religions hate this. Sovereign grace is offensive. We've said it just before. It leaves us totally dependent on God's mercy. And the legalists hate this too. Because if it's all grace, then the church can't use the law as a big stick to tell people what to do, to control people, to force them to behave, or else they'll go to hell. Legalists love the law. They hate grace because they're afraid that people will just do what they want. But the believer says, I love it. Bring it on. Sovereign grace. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's in Christ. It's from Christ. It's through Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is my life. Christ is my redemption. Christ is my wisdom. Christ is my sanctification. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my justification. And so turn from your sin. Don't try to go it alone, brother and sister. Repent from your sin and look to Christ. Abandon all trust in your goodness and your efforts to fix up your life and to get your heart and your life and your relationships and your marriage and your family in order. Give it up because you're not going to fix it. But repent and believe. Hate sin and love Christ and all will be well with your soul. Amen.